Hello and welcome. I'm Trumpet Man, and you're listening to the 40 Card College Podcast, a podcast about advancing your limited game with your first-time drafter or trophy master. So today we have quite an exciting episode here. The first thing is that we're going to be talking about some Strixhaven now that it's back. So I'm going to be talking a little bit about, you know, the cards that I find that you kind of want to be looking out for, some overrated, underrated. I'm talking about the format overall because the format is back on Arena for about the next week as of the time of this recording before Shadows Over Innistrad Remaster comes out. I am going to be doing some episodes on that coming up, so look forward to that. In addition, in the back half of the episode, I'm going to be talking about some theory crafting as well. Hopefully that all sounds good to you. But first, a quick word on the Patreon. Uh, This show is listener-supported via the Patreon. Thanks to all the patrons already supporting the show. I really appreciate your support. Now, the resources here, including this podcast, will always be free, and you can find everything at 40cardcollege.com or in this episode's description. One of the things that you do get as a perk as being a patron, though, is the show notes. Uh, So you'll get, you know, a PDF of the show notes that you can kind of follow along, read. It has pictures of the crack-a-packs that we do. And then has links, you know, to the various cards and spreadsheets when we go over those, everything else. For this one episode, because there are kind of extensive show notes to help you follow along, even if you're not a patron, I'm going to make it public by looking in the episode description. So there'll be a link there. And then also anywhere you can find the podcast, there'll also be the show notes posted. But generally, the show notes are going to be a patron perk. So just wanted to let you know about that. Um, So if you enjoy the show notes of this episode then you could always check those out in the future. Of course, there's also other perks like draft log review and coaching sessions. So you can go to patreon.com slash 40 card college and find a tier that's right for you. All right, we do have a question of the week this week, which is also a patron perk. Uh, so Doom Scroller asks, can you talk a little bit about when to trade resources versus keeping a board and how removal plays into that equation? Great question. Really could probably be an entire episode. Um, I'm also going to talk a little bit about resources and how they interact, like I said, in the theory crafting portion of the episode in a bit. But to address the question right now, trading resources is really about figuring out who is the beatdown to quote, you know, that famous article. But also, if you think the game is going to be about a short game or a long game. So if you think going extending the game, making it a longer game benefits you because maybe you have a little bit of a slower deck, you know you have good rares you could draw to, you want to get to five, six, seven mana, then often trading resources is valuable and keeping the board clear because if your opponent attacks their 2-2 and your 2-2, you either can take two damage or trade. And so if you trade, it means you have that those two life points later on so that maybe you don't have to block a 3-3, you can take three damage while you set up your board. If you're being, if you think you're the aggressor, Often you want to use resources to deny your opponent that opportunity. So if you reverse the situation, you have a 2-2 and your opponent has a 2-2. Normally you would just attack your 2-2 into their 2-2. But if you think your 2-2 is very valuable, and let's say you have a shock in hand, then you might just want to shock their 2-2 so that you can attack for 2 and get 2 damage through. Basically you have to decide, is the shock going to get better, or is it valuable to my plan right now? Now, if let's say you have like a 3-3 in hand on turn 3, and you have the option of shocking your opponent's 2-2 or just playing a 3-3, well, generally there, you you do want to do damage. So you would attack your 2-2 and your opponent's 2-2, hoping they don't block, potentially. But if they do block, at least you get to play a 3-3, and then maybe your shock can can pick off a 3-2 or a 4-2 in the future, 
and it can get value there. But if you don't have that 3-3, and so you're deciding like on your turn three, do I just use the shock right now to push two damage versus kind of just attacking and not doing anything with my turn, and you think you're aggressive, then often you want to use your removal in those spots to be able to push damage early because you're trying to close the game before your opponent is going to set up a bigger board. So it really depends if you think you're aggressive or more controlling and how you use your resources. And also when you're drafting and deck building, oftentimes the types of removal that you want to draft and deck build correlate with the decks themselves. Like if you're drafting more of like a mid-rangey or controlling deck, your deck benefits from the three through six drops you put in your deck because they tend to be, you know, on the more expensive side and that's really how you plan to win games. So in those decks, you kind of want cheap removal that's good in the early game, things like shock um, or your deal threes or whatever, so that you can just survive to the point that your haymakers can come down. Whereas, and, and you don't want to play kind of the five mana type removal spells because usually on like five mana, you're really trying to affect the board with big plays of your own, like, you know, a five mana five five or something or maybe a big flying threat. In aggressive strategies, you often want to develop your board early by playing to the board with creatures. So you don't actually need as many of like the shock type cards. I mean, you could have one, it could be fine. But most of you're playing like your two mana two twos, three mana three threes, etc. to get out ahead early. And you can actually start to play like things like Molten Rebuke, which is a five mana sorcery deal five to kill a creature, which is basically unplayable in a lot of control decks because you no longer have the time to be able to play that card in control because likely you're going to be behind. Whereas in aggressive decks, that's the top of your curve. And if you've already played a two drop, three drop, four drop, playing something that just clears the way when your opponent's trying to stabilize, which they'll try be trying to do desperately, is exactly what you want to be doing. In addition, you kind of want to be thinking about uh, combat tricks. Now, I want to bring up combat tricks because you really only generally want to be playing combat tricks in aggressive and mid-range decks. They're best in the truly aggressive decks because you can put your opponent into a spot where they need to block. If your opponent is falling behind on life total, they're going to basically make any trades possible so that they keep their life total high, which means they're going to be blocking your creatures. So in a lot of those spots, you want to think about the value of trading to keep your combat trick in hand versus using the combat trick to keep your creature in play and that's the big question that you always want to be asking yourself so if we go back to our example of you know you have a 2-2 your opponent has a 2-2 let's say you have a titanic growth in hand so when you attack on turn three your opponent's tapped out they block their 2-2 on your 2-2 it kind of goes back to the same situation with the shock except now your opponent has not taken damage this turn because they blocked how valuable is your 2-2 in this spot that can change game to game. If you have no other plays for that turn, and then maybe you have a four drop in hand, you might consider using the Titanic growth just to clear the board, hoping that your 2-2 is going to be able to deal damage in the future, and thus keep keeping the board clear. Also, if you have another follow-up play, it's generally correct not to use your trick to keep the board clear, because you'd rather use it on a better creature. If you attack with your 2-2 and your opponent's 2-2, and we go back to the example that you have a 3-3 in hand, then you don't want to use the Titanic growth to pump your creature because you would rather play a 3-3 and then develop your board that way and still have the combat trick for when they're going to block the 3-3. So basically you get to save a better creature as the game progresses. In addition, if you have a bunch of small creatures, like let's say your hand is just like three 2-2s, the Titanic growth gets better actually as the game goes because what can happen is if you 
trade off some two twos, but then you have like two more in play. So let's say you have two two power creatures. Your opponent plays a three three of their own. Now, if you've already traded off the Titanic growth earlier to keep your two two alive, you now have a spot where you have three two twos and your opponent has a three three. You don't have a Titanic growth, so you can't push any damage there. You're basically chump attacking one of your creatures to deal four damage, which is not a good trade in general. However, if you had traded your two twos off, you now have two of them versus your opponent's three three and a Titanic growth. In this spot, you just get to attack, and if your opponent blocks, you get Titanic growth to kill something bigger, and it sort of scales as you think about the board growing, and you can win that way. So, yes, you have removal, and you kind of want to think about trading resources to play a long game, but also you can think about like uh, combat tricks in terms of trading resources because you want to make it so that you can continue attacking and pressing your advantage before things get to a long game. And it's always a fine line because with the combat tricks, the longer the game goes, the more opportunity your opponent has to have a little bit extra mana, at which point maybe they can interact with your combat trick and you get blown out. But if you use it too early, you're stopping your own tempo by using combat tricks and not developing your board further. And that's why you really can't play too many combat tricks, and yet they're also so good in aggressive strategies because you can just turn all your creatures sideways rather than just using a single removal spell. Like, you can always just use it on whatever the best situation is after your opponent blocks. Like, you are the first one to act. Um, so hopefully that gives you an idea, and I'm going to go a little bit more into this topic again later with uh, the discussion. So next up, we have a crack draft or crack a pack, but I thought it would be interesting to do this with Strixhaven because it's online. So we do have cards in front of us here. And again, you can see the picture of this in the show notes itself. All right, so if you look at this pack, we're starting with the commons. So we have a pest summoning, which is one hybrid black green, hybrid black green. It's a sorcery with lessons, so you can go get it from your board when you cast a card with learn. And it says create two one one black and green pest creature tokens with when this creature dies, you gain one life. So black green in general in the set is, I think, the weakest color combination in terms of the five schools, because you have all the enemy color pairs as the five guilds in Strixhaven. That being said, because it's hybrid mana, pest summoning can do decent work in terms of black or green decks just to stabilize the board and slow your opponent down. And you can play it in like a blue-black control deck, which is kind of a secret archetype as well. So it has a few different applications, but not where I want to be in terms of first pick, but it's a decent card. Next up, we have Pillar Drop Warden. Three and a red for a 1-5 reach. It has two and a tap. Sacrifice it to return target instant or sorcery card from your graveyard to your hand. Activate only as a sorcery. Kind of a decent card in terms of like the more controlling decks in the format. I like it best in maybe blue-red because you have really good spells to return. I think it's supposed to be kind of like a red-white plant in terms of the set design because red-white's all about returning things from the graveyard, that kind of thing, but not what you really want to be doing with red-white. You just want to be aggressive. Whereas in blue-red, um, you have like six and seven mana spells, so you can play those, get them back. So the Pillar Drop Warden does that but in the meantime it's also a giant body to block so pretty decent card i like it more than pest summoning but i would still be disappointed to first pick it then we have ogyar battle seer three blue red for a three four haste and you can tap it to scry one not really a card you want to play mostly because it's a creature and so a lot of the cards in this format really reward you for being spells the creature has to be really good 
for you to want to put it in your deck or have like some special use case or just be aggressive and you want to be playing it for that reason. So don't love the Augur Battle Seer. Then we have Quadrix Campus, which is a green blue tap land. You can pay four and a tap to scry one. A decent card. Uh, mostly you want to get these cards on the wheel. Uh, but you could do worse than putting a campus in your deck. And also the fact that these exist along with environmental sciences means that it's pretty easy to splash in this format. And so if you happen to have like two schools put together to make like maybe a teamer deck or you could play like a Mardu deck, uh, it makes it easy to splash some rares in different colors. Uh, then we have Elestris Historian, one in a red for a 2-1. Give a 5, exile it from your graveyard to make a tapped 3-2 uh, spirit token. I actually like this card quite a bit just as being a 2-drop that you can play specifically because the flashback format is best of one, so getting on board is still valuable. And while the format is slow, you can sometimes just press tempo advantages, and so if you get enough cheap things into play, your opponent's trying to set, set up, oftentimes you can deal like 4 or 6 damage with your 2-drops before your opponent really stabilizes as you just kind of keep putting things onto the board. And the Historian also is great at blocking because it turns into a 3-2 later in the game. Then we have First Day of Class, which is one in a red for an instant. It says, whenever a creature enters the battlefield under your control this turn, put a plus one plus one counter on it, and it gains haste until end of turn, and it has learned. So you get one of those lessons from your sideboard. We saw Pest Summoning earlier as a lesson you could pick. But First Day of Class can be good in the really, really aggressive red decks because it gives that counter and gives you another creature by giving you one of the creature token generators like the summonings. Um, but not a card you have to pick early. You'd hope to wheel it. Then we have Hunt for Specimens. I kind of like this one as well. Um, it's one and a black uh, for a sorcery. It says create a 1-1 one, one black and green pest creature token with when this creature dies, you gain one life and has learn. Uh, so it makes a pest and learns. Fine card. I don't love starting with a defensively oriented black card because the best black deck is Silver Quill, which is white black and that deck wants to usually be aggressive, means I don't like starting uh, with Hunt for Specimens because it can send you down the black-green road, which can be fine, but you'd rather not start there. Then we have Serpentine Curve, a really kind of sweet card. Three and a blue for a sorcery, and it creates a XX, where X is the number of instants and sorcery cards you own in Exile and your graveyard. So if you play this and you already had four spells in your graveyard, it comes in as a 4-4, four, four, and it can just scale with the game and I find that this is one of the main reasons to just want to play like you know your seven creature decks where you just have all spells because it's not actually that hard to make like a six six or a seven seven and that's really really good for four mana so big fan of serpentine curve and you can kind of draft entire decks around it which is pretty cool then we have reckless amplomancer one and a green for a two two and you can play five mana to double its power and toughness until in a turn it is just a bear. If you need to play this in blue-green as a body just to get to the late game, because blue-green's mechanic is you want to get eight lands into play, you could do worse than playing the Amplomancer, one of those, but there are much better two-drops in the format, so I'd hope to not play it. Rounding out the commons, our last one is Eager First Year. It's one and white for a 2-2. Now, this one has Magecraft, so whenever you cast or copy an instant or sorcery spell, Eager First Year gets plus one, plus one until in a turn. Kind of looks like an unassuming card because it's 2-mana 2-2. Two two. However, it can scale like pretty quickly. Like Your opponent wants to block it early, but if, if they don't have a 2-2 two two of their own and they only have like a 3-3, three three, they kind of can't block it because of the Magecraft. And there's a lot of like proactive things you can do in white. 
so that you're triggering the Magecraft. You don't have to rely on like removing your opponent's board, but also there are a lot of ways to remove your opponent's board. And then with Lesson and Learn, you actually have a lot higher spell count than you would in a normal set. So I really like the Eager First here. Of the commons, that probably would be my first pick, but I'm not happy to first pick any of these commons. But at Uncommon, we have some nice ones here. So Professor of Symbology, one on a white for a 2-1, and when it enters the battlefield, learn. That's just a fantastic card because it's a built-in 2-for-1, gets on board early, can be aggressive, can be defensive. And so like it's like super eager first year, way, way, way better and a much better first pick. There's Master Symmetrist, which is a, a nice one too. Two green green for a 4-4 four, four reach. And whenever a creature you control uh, attacks, if it has power that's equal to toughness, then it gains trample. So this is like a four mana four for reach that also gets trample and gives all your random uh, fractal creature tokens, like the serpentine curve we saw earlier, gives those trample when they attack. Now the symmetrist is nice, but um, at the end of the day, it is still kind of just a creature. It doesn't really give card advantage. Um, it doesn't scale with a super long game, which are kind of the aspects of... Strixhaven that I'm looking for. I'm looking for like cheap plays that interact the board that can be useful when you top deck them in a late game and also can like either run over your opponent or can be grindy. And so those flexible cards are going to be the best. So right now, again, I'm on the Professor of Symbology. Uh, let's see our last few cards. We have Snow Day, four blue blue for an instant. Add on common, tap up to two target creatures. Those creatures don't untap during the controller's next untap step. Draw two cards and discard a card. Uh, definitely a card that I really, really like. Um, it's probably like the second best card in this pack, I think, so far. It's just so much time to tap down two things for two turn cycles when you cast this on your opponent's turn. The draw two discard also is a way you should close the game um, because you're going to draw into like maybe another removal spell to kill, like maybe you'll take out your opponent's third blocker. And so it turns games that you looks like you're losing into one that you're winning pretty easily. And it's just really powerful. Okay, then we have Callous Blood Mage at rare. Two and a black for a 2-1. Uh, and when it enters the battlefield, you can make one of those pests. You can draw a card and lose a life. Or you can exile target player's graveyard. All around, just a good card. I think black is worse than white. Because the white aggressive decks are really good in the format. So I think I like the Professor more than the Callous Blood Mage. They both kind of, you know, come in. They're 2-1. They draw a card. The Blood Mage does cost an extra mana, although you can make a pest with it. It's more flexible. But I think at you know face value, actually, the cheaper um, Uncommon is just better than this. And then we also have our Mystical Archive card, Putrefy. So classic, one black green, destroy target, artifact, or creature. It can't be regenerated. Good card, and you could splash it in like a white-black deck. Or if you play black green, obviously, it's excellent. But it is gold, two colors, which is not a huge knock in the format. But if you have a really good single colored card, I think that is still better. And so we end up with a Professor of Symbology as our pick. And overall, a fun pack to talk about. All right, so as I was mentioning, if we looked at that pack, it's kind of emblematic of the format overall. What you want to be thinking about when you're drafting Strixhaven, you kind of want to be starting to take the most powerful cards, whatever bombs you happen to open. And then what you kind of want to be doing is taking strong lessons and learn cards. Like here, we saw Professor of Symbology, really strong card to be able to go get those cards from your sideboard. There is the danger if you take too many good learn cards aggressively, but you don't get the good lessons. It can be kind of a problem where you just 
have more learn than lesson and you can't get as many lessons as you want of your sideboard. So you do kind of want to be balancing those. I'm not averse to taking a learn card early if it's powerful enough before I have the good lessons because usually you're going to be able to find up find some common summonings and things to be able to make that work. Being flexible in the draft I think is really key. You would think because it's a guild set you just want to lock in early but there's a couple benefits to kind of finding your open lane. One of them is you'll get really strong gold cards late if you can find like a certain archetype is open. I have a draft right now where I started kind of down the white black road, which I which is my preferred preference. I think like the aggressive white black decks are the best in the format. But if you can't get into that, it's better to be in an open lane. So I started off with like three or four white and black cards, but then I got past a bunch of like really good gold blue green cards. And so I took some of those just like on a whim, picks five and six to see, okay, well maybe this is open because these shouldn't be in the pack relative to how late they are. And I completely abandoned my first four picks, ended up with a really good blue-green deck. Um, I have some Curve Toppers, Bookworms, like these 8-mana 7-7 tramples, which in a normal format is not exciting, but it's not that hard to get the 8-mana in this format. They also draw cards, gain life, so it's just like this blue-green ramp deck, really good. Um, And so that's a lot of fun. In addition, you can also get a little bit fancy or cute in this format, where if a specific um, two-color pair, like the defined... Uh, enemy color pairs which are the schools in the format if those aren't super open sometimes you can find like two individual colors and pair them together and as long as you have a game plan and they're meshing together it can work generally the way that is is that let's say you have a white aggressive deck you can kind of actually pair that with green cards and build like a selesnia deck where you're playing the white cards with maybe some green pump spells and just trying to overpower your opponent quickly you do lose quite a bit in terms of not being able to play gold cards, but the fact that some of the gold cards are hybrid, so you're going to be able to play those in your deck anyways and get the benefit of that, and also mix and match between those archetypes. Any white aggressive deck can pair in that way. Generally, it's going to be white-green, or you can sometimes build uh, like a red-green deck as well, as long as you're playing the aggressive green cards with the red cards, which there's not that many. There's not a ton of reasons to do that, but the best reason to draft an off-color deck is kind of the blue-black control decks where um, there's just all spells and you're trying to get those serpentine curves I talked about earlier where you're just trying to basically have as many spells as possible and you're more just trying to play the classic control strategy, stop your opponent from what they're doing, and then you win the game you know, through inevitability. And so because of that, there's a lot of archetypes, but also there's a lot of flexibility to go into those multiple schools Um, And so it's a really fun format. If you have time to check it out before it leaves in about a week, then I recommend trying some Strixhaven. To give you the best opportunity to win in your Strixhaven drafts, I thought I would apply some of the overrated, underrated cards uh, from that we've basically been doing in the last few formats to this format. So you can kind of think about, well, if I see this card early, it might actually wheel. Now, in terms of wheeling, it's directly related to the average last CNET value on 17 lands. Again, huge shout out to 17 lands. If we didn't have that data, I couldn't really report on any of it. Um, So if you can support them ever, that's a wonderful place to put your resources and support them. But Sirkovitz, our resident data scientist, has sort of explained through his analysis what ELSA means in terms of wheeling cards. And so there's a really nice chart that you can look at if you're looking at the show notes, but I'll also break it down because, of course, this is an audio format. And it explains 
ALSA values and then how likely the cards are to wheel based on like your pick one, pack one. So if you open up a pack and you see a card and it happens to have like an ALSA value of eight, that means on average it goes eighth pick. But of course, that's an average. So sometimes it'll go ninth pick. Sometimes it'll go a little bit earlier, etc. So how often are you going to see it ninth pick and later, which would be wheeling the card? Well, it's actually going to be about 80% of the time. And all ALSA values that are lower than three, so like ALSA values of one and two, they almost never wheel because because it's an average, folks are always going to take those really, really powerful cards, first pick, second pick, third pick, fourth pick, etc. And so you're almost never going to see those cards on the wheel. So around ALSA value three, you're starting to just get a chance of maybe wheeling cards once in a blue moon. But it turns out ALSA three, there's about a 3% chance to wheel the cards. And ALSA 8, there's about an 80% chance to wheel the cards. So it actually lines up really nicely to remember that because you have ALSA 3 to 8 and then you have 3 to 80. So they're kind of nice values to latch on to. Every ALSA that increases, so going from about 3 to 4, 4 to 5, etc., increases the chance of wheeling the card by about 15%. So if we think about this, the way I like to remember it, ALSA 3s, you have about 3% to wheel a card. ALSA 4, about 20% to wheel the card, and then 15% higher every single time. So ALSA 5, 35%, ALSA 6, 50%, ALSA 7, uh, 65%, and ALSA 8, 80%. And the reason it's useful is that when we look at overrated and underrated cards, a lot of that ties into the fact of how likely it is to wheel a card. So you can pick up the card on the wheel because it is underrated and you can take advantage of a strategy by taking a good rare or uncommon in that color combination knowing that the underrated card is likely to come back to you. Um, when we talk about these underrated strategies, if we don't take that into consideration, if there was no wheeling in a pack, then it actually wouldn't help you that much um, because knowing that something's underrated doesn't really matter if it's just dependent on the packs themselves. Now, you could maybe see a card go a little later than you would expect even if the wheel didn't exist, uh, but it does exist and it's really good information to look at when you're making your first pick because sometimes you can get two really good cards out of a pack simply because the community does not value certain cards that actually have quite decent win rates. So that's the theory behind this. Again, um, seeing that visual uh, also can help. In addition, every pick past pick one, the chance of wheeling the card goes down by about 10% relative to the stats I just explained to you. So everything I said was based on pick one, pack one. But if it was pick two, pack one, then all those values, the chance of winning them would be about 10% less at each interval. So just something to keep in mind. All right, so all that said, let's look at the top 20 underrated commons and uncommons. I've just grouped them all together, starting at number 20. So remember, they're ranked in terms of how late you get the card versus its win rate. So some of these cards, they're really underrated because... They go extremely late and have a decent win rate. Um, and so you keep that in mind. Or some of them, they have a really high win rate, but they go a little bit later. And so that's all uh, evaluated when I do the calculations with underrated, overrated, based on the differences of ALSA and Game in Hand win rate. Okay, before we get into it, if you want the specific win rates and the ALSA values, they're here for you. Um, but just take a look at the show notes because it's going to be a lot easier for you to visualize that than me saying the exact numbers. So I'm going to talk about the cards and they're put in order based on the values, um, but follow along in the show notes if you so choose. So at number 20, we have Elemental Mastery Piece. 
which is the blue red uh, finisher at common. And it's the seven mana make two four fours. I found this card to be quite excellent. Um, oftentimes, if you're playing blue red, you kind of use this as your go to. You also have the sub theme of spells that cost five or more in blue red. And so you can sometimes get this elementary masterpiece to cost maybe five or six mana. And then it's quite excellent at that point. Number 19, Eureka Moment, kind of the blue-green signpost at common. Two blue-green instant to draw two cards, and then you can put a land into play. We talked about how that color pair is all about ramping, and for some reason this card does go pretty late, even though it is quite good. Um, you really want to get to that eight-mana threshold in blue-green. Eureka Moment helps do that. And there are a lot of like tricks and things you can hold up in the format. So the fact that this is an instant really nice so that you can interact with the opponent if something goes awry but if it doesn't then you just have eureka moment you play it and then you can play like a five or six drop on your next turn and everything's looking amazing at number 18 we have fractal summoning uh this is the blue green summoning it costs hybrid blue green hybrid blue green and x um it's a sorcery and it makes an xx equal to x uh and so what's really nice about this card is that you can turn all of your learn cards into like a giant finisher and so it's okay in blue green it's also okay in blue red and has quite a nice win rate to go along with it uh, next up on our underrated is negate at 17 this is part of the mystical archive because the format is dominated by spells negate is definitely main deckable but just also excellent and so countering non-creatures is exactly where you want to be and so that will sometimes wheel even which is fantastic Number 16, a card I've been playing a little bit more uh, this go-around with the flashbacks is Solve the Equation. Tune a blue for a sorcery at Uncommon. Search your library for an instant or sorcery card, reveal it, put it in your hand, and then shuffle. Um, I found that the blue decks often have a key pivotal card that you want to find or have cheap removal that you might want to be able to find as well. So if you happen to have like Shock or Lightning Bolt from the Mystical Archives, in your blue red deck but you also have blue red seven drops solve the equation is kind of nice because you can go find your cheap card to interact with the board if you really need to or you can go get your seven drop uh, and everything in between and a lot of the spells in the format have very different values like you have just pure card draw as well so if the board is stable you go get your card draw and so quite like the card implies you can solve the equation and get exactly what you need there most people don't want this card and it has a decent win rate and will often wheel um, Quantrix Campus is next. It was in our uh, pack, the Blue-Green Tapland. Decent card, often will wheel as well. These you do want to look for on the wheel specifically, and I think this card is the most underrated of the campuses because the games in Blue-Green often go really late, so the ability to scry is really nice with that. Number 14 is Mascot Interception. This is three and a red for a uh, uncommon sorcery. And it says the spell costs three less to cast if it targets a creature token. So any of those summonings. And gain control of target creature until end of turn. Untap that creature gets plus two plus zero oh and gains haste until end of turn. So I just found that it can be decent. Uh, if you do have some ways to sacrifice it, like we talked about pairing up um, different color pairs that aren't like the intended color pairs, specifically like red, black. Black has some ways to sacrifice. That can kind of work. But more importantly, it's just a card that goes really late and can happen to steal games. Everyone is pretty much playing some version of the summonings. And so this card can just steal like a 4-4 four, four for one mana. If your opponent wasn't expecting it, then suddenly they could be taking like 7 damage out of nowhere. 
Beaming Defiance is the next one. This card is kind of the reason I think the white decks work as well as they do. It's one and a white instant at common for target creature you control gets plus two plus two and gains hexproof until in turn. So the white decks want to be really aggressive anyways. Your opponent is falling behind. I talked about how that's the ideal spot for combat tricks in that whole breakdown earlier. And so if you're the one with the combat trick there and you're going wide, your opponent's going to have to block because they're catching up to your aggressive starts because most of the format is not aggressive. And so Beaming Defiance works really well there. And then in addition, if the game goes longer and it's starting to stall out and you eventually do draw, you know, a four drop, you have six mana, your opponent tries to kill it, that Hexproof mode can come into play quite nicely there. So overall, just quite a fantastic card. It's at number 13 here. Number 12, most uh, underrated, Biomathematician. Uh, the blue-green common, one green-blue for a 2-2, two -two. Uh, and when it enters the battlefield, create a 0-0 zero -zero green and blue fractal creature token, put a counter on it for each fractal you control. So basically a 2-2 two -two that comes with a 1-1, one -one, but if you already had some of those other fractal tokens, uh, your creature that comes in will be even bigger. Kind of think of like a Charforger analogy. Now, it's not like Charforger and having all that extra text in one, but at a common... Two, two creatures, you know, 3-3 three, three spread across two creatures at a minimum is quite a nice card, and they obviously stack very well. The more you have in them, the better they're actually going to be as well. Um, then we have Humiliated, number 11, white-black sorcery at Uncommon. Target opponent reveals their hand. You choose a non-land card from it. They discard it and put a plus-one, plus-one counter on a creature you control. There is a plus-one, plus-one counter theme in white-black, but really the better theme of white-black with plus-one, plus-one counters is just using them to kill your opponent um so i wouldn't worry too much about like the benefits of the plus one plus one counter but it is nice to get that to continue attacking and because the format has um a lot of like tricky instants and big plays being able to see your opponent's hand and, and discard their best card not only helps you play around all of that but lets you sequence exactly what you need to do because Games play out very differently, whether your opponent has exactly one removal spell or like three removal spells in their hand. And so figuring out how to navigate that as the aggro deck is really nice. And so Humiliate, I think, overperforms in this format for that reason. At number 10, we have Whirlwind Denial. It's uh, one of those mystical archives, two and a blue for an instant. At Uncommon, for each spell and ability your opponent controls, counter it unless its controller pays four. In general, it's just going to be a two and a blue counter spell. If, if they your opponent plays one of those cards where like it copies a bunch of times, then Whirlwind Denial could just counter all of them, which is pretty fantastic. That doesn't come up that often, but overall just like counter spells are pretty decent in this format. I mentioned how Negate is really good. Whirlwind Denial goes even later than Negate, and so that's why it's number 10 on the underrated. Number nine, Expressive Iteration is now banned in some formats because uh, it's so good. This is the blue-red Sorcerer Uncommon. Look at the top three cards of your library. Put one of them into your hand, one on the bottom, and exile one of them. You may play the exile card this turn. My guess is that the word is out on this card now, so it's probably going to be less underrated than it was initially. What I did to find this data was I took the 17's lands data for the end of the Strixhaven format through all the flashback drafts to now. If I just took the most recent flashback drafts, there actually was not enough data to gather game in hand win rate averages. So I had to take a little bit of the data beforehand, my guess is Expressive Iteration is, is a little bit underrated from that time. Now it's probably a little bit more appropriate related, but if we aggregate all of that, it is still number nine on the underrated list. Number eight, Containment Breach. Uh, so this is a nice little sorcery lesson at Uncommon. Cost two and a green. 
Uh, destroy target artifact or enchantment. If its mana value is two or less, create a pest. So anytime you have a really situational card as a lesson, it's pretty fantastic because normally you wouldn't play artifact enchant removal main deck, but this is an easy way to be able to do that. And um, it's inflated, I think, a little bit in terms of game in hand win rate because the only times you probably are going to draw this card is when it does have a target. And so just drafting it doesn't speak the full volumes of that. And so some of these situational lessons are going to be a lot higher. But the point is, is that this card goes pretty late. So the fact that it is kind of a nice, flexible card for you when you need it as a lesson means that you can pick it up a bit later, keep it at your eye out for it, and then it performs decently well in those spots uh, where it applies. Number seven, Fortifying Drought. Single green for an instant, you gain two life. Target creature gets plus X plus X until in a turn, where X is the amount of life you gain this turn. So for a single mana, it's usually plus two plus two, but there are some other ways to gain additional life. Uh, but anytime a card is as cheap as the Fortifying Drought, uh, it's something to keep your eye out for in this format particular because of Magecraft triggers. So getting to play instants and sorceries to make everything trigger, it only costing one mana is pretty fantastic because then you can pair it with some other spells on the same turn. You can kind of just have a combo off turn we deal a ton of damage, and that can be very effective as well. Um, number six, Test of Talents. Uh, this is one in a blue to counter target instant or sorcery spell. And then you search as controller's graveyard hand and library for the same cards, and you can exile all of those. So it's a, like a negate, but it also has the benefit, like I mentioned, where you get perfect information of your opponent's hand. So negate, look at your opponent's hand, is a pretty effective card. In addition, if it's a card that really matters... Your opponent's not going to be able to bring it back. There are quite a few ways to be able to bring back instants and sorceries from the graveyard in the set. And so getting around that with Test of Talents is pretty fantastic. But again, this card actually goes even later than the gate, which is kind of interesting because um, it's a strict upgrade. But uh, yeah, so number six on the underrated list. Number seven, or sorry, number five is Curate, one in a blue for uh, Surveil to draw a card. It has an average win rate, but it goes extremely late. So if you care about spells or just having something you can do that's good on turn two, but also later in the game, Curate can be your go-to. And this card's going to wheel about 80% of the time since it does have that Elsa 8. So you never have to pick it early, but if you kind of need to pick it up just because it might do well in your deck, it's there for you. Um, and number four, most underrated, is Reconstruct History. Now this one's kind of an interesting one. Two red white for a sorcery at uncommon. Return up to one target artifact card, one target enchantment card, up to one target instant card, and up to one target sorcery card, and if you're really lucky, a planeswalker from your graveyard to your hand, and then exile it. So for four mana, usually what you're going to do is you're going to return an instant and a sorcery from your graveyard to your hand, and then probably an artifact as well if you're building around it. And then if you're really like maximizing the card, sometimes they're going to enchantment as well. So for four mana, it's a two to three for one. It's slow but sometimes you'll also get the full four for one. And when you can do that, when you can build your deck around it, the card actually is quite excellent. Um, so think about that in terms of like these slower, probably blue-red decks splashing the Reconstruct history. Um, you could do it in straight red-white, but the slower red-white decks are generally a trap. And so you're probably going to play this splashed in a different style of deck. Speaking of underrated, we have Thrilling Discovery next red white for a sorcery at common you gain two life then you can discard two cards and if you do you may draw three slightly above average win rate um, but basically you can get it to wheel almost literally every time and so if you want thrilling discoveries uh, just know that you basically can always pick them up 
And it's kind of nice because what you can do is if you do have a bit of a slower deck, the two life is a buffer on this card. And so you can play this on turn two rather than a two drop and then stabilize the board with a three drop. It's going to smooth out your hand uh, and it can be pretty decent from there as well. And then our last two are start from scratch. This is two and a red for a less than that uncommon. It either deals one damage to any target or you can destroy target artifact. Again, these lessons I think are going to have inflated game in hand win rates because of the whole mechanic. You're only really going to draw them when you really want to. Um, and so the card has pretty good win, win rate because of that. Like the situations as it comes up is going to increase its win rate there. But also it goes quite late, so it's worth mentioning. And then in the similar vein, the most underrated card is Mercurial Transformation, which is one in a blue for a sorcery lesson at Uncommon. It says, until end of turn, target non-land permanent loses all abilities, becomes a blue frog creature with base power and toughness 1-1, one, one, or an octopus creature with base power and toughness 4-4. Four, four. Uh, again, generally, when you do draw this card from your lesson board, it's going to be because you want to turn something to a 4-4 four, four and just attack your opponent, or make something lose all its abilities and then pick it off with like a shock. So uh, it does quite a nice job with that. You'll almost always be able to wheel it and uh, know that it's good to have that optionality because when it does come up, you're going to have you're going to win those games a lot of the time. OK, so if we look at that list, it just kind of reminds you to not underrate a lot of these like blue, a lot of blue cards on the list, honestly, but like counter spells, things that interact with the format, uh, white pump spells, being aggressive, and then also um, some of the other trickier blue spells like the blue summonings and Eureka moment, these types of things. Um, so that gives you an idea of maybe what might want to wheel. Again, look at the exact breakdown in the show notes if you're interested in that. Then we have overrated commons and uncommons though. These are the ones where it's not necessarily that you want to avoid them, but they're picked really early. And so you might not want to pick them super early because they have, all of these cards have an average or below average win rate. So if you're picking them really early and it's just an average card, you might want to look elsewhere um, to more of the underrated cards. For example, every single card I'm about to tell you has lower win rates than every other card on the underrated list that we just looked at. So that gives you a frame of reference. They're all picked earlier with a lower win rate relative to the cards that are picked later with a higher win rate. At number 20, we have Zimone, which is the blue-green uh, legend. Blue and a green for a 1-2 legend at Uncommon. You can pay one and tap to put a land card from your hand on the battlefield and tap, or you can pay four and tap to draw a card. If you have eight or more lands, draw two cards instead. A decent card, but it just reads a lot better than it actually plays. The problem with Zimone is it's really expensive to draw cards, and so it's not generally that useful until the late game. And the ramp part of the card where you're putting lands in your play, it's hard to accelerate by that much unless you just have a really clunky hand. So for Zimone, oftentimes uh, you could find something that can basically do that effect better. Necrotic Fumes is 19th. This is one black black for a sorcery lesson. As an additional cost to cast a spell, this spell exile a creature control, and then you can exile target creature or planeswalker. So you do have to two for one yourself to make this card work. That part's not too bad because the lesson gives you that flexibility for when you actually play this card. But given the fact that this has a pretty mediocre win rate and it is a lesson, so you kind of only want to get it when it would be useful, means you kind of want to look to other places to be able to get your lessons. Okay, number 18 is a product of the discourse. So this card is Environmental Sciences. It's two mana for a lesson and it says search your library for basic land card. 
reveal it, put it in your hand, then shuffle, you gain two life. This card is quite excellent in that it gives a lot of flexibility in the draft. Uh, it's flexible early, can let you um, kind of pivot into different lanes. The problem with the card is that it gives you that flexibility, but it's not inherently that powerful. And because everyone knows that this card is so flexible, it has a really, really, really um, high pick value. So it's also is around three, which is really high for a common. That's about how high Hexgold Slash is taken in one for comparison. The difference is that Hexgold Slash like basically wins most games that it's cast in relative to environmental sciences, which is like a smoothing mechanic. And so maybe try and pick more powerful cards over this rather than the flexibility because pretty much everyone wants to take the environmental sciences. So if you can afford to not build a splishy, splashy deck, um, then it's going to be much better, I think, most of the time. Talking about more streamlined, next on 17th for the overrated is Shadewing Laureate. It's one black and a hybrid white-black for a 2-2 uncommon creature. It has flying, and whenever another creature you control with flying dies, put a plus one, plus one counter on target creature control. So... The card looks kind of powerful because it's going to give you all these extra plus one, plus one counters and do all these things, but it needs another creature with flying to die to get a counter. Basically, this card never triggers, so it's a really hard to cast Windrake, and so for the most part, just don't pick this card. If you got it really late and you had a, a deck where it can work really well in, sure, you can play it, but the problem is, even in those decks, they'll just kill this first. So turning, I guess, your Windrake into a Lightning Rod is nice. But most of the time, your opponent's just going to let this live, and it's going to be much worse than the white-black summoning that just makes a 2-1 as a lesson. And so that's actually a much better card, and so I guess try to look for that instead if you want this effect. At number 16, we have Lorehold Pledge Mage, 1, and then Red-White Hybrid, Red-White Hybrid for a 2-2 First Strike. This one has Magecraft, and so it gets plus 1, plus 1 when you cast a spell. A decent card, but um, it's just not exactly what Red-White wants to be doing. If you're really aggressive in white, then this card can be okay, but it's just a little understated. The 2-2 first strike mode of the card, you're really hoping to get a little bit more power out of this, um, and so it takes a lot of work to kind of grow it there, and your opponent can kind of just ignore it for a lot of the time. Then we have Blood Researcher being overrated next, uh, one black green for uh, a 2-2 menace, and whenever you gain life, put a plus one plus one counter on it. So again, it's kind of in the worst color pair, in my opinion. And the problem with the card is black green is very grindy most of the time, but this card is very aggressive. And so it's really just a mishmash of what you're trying to achieve in black green. You can build kind of the all-in blood researcher deck where you put a bunch of these and then you find some ways to get some life repeatedly. But the card has pretty bad win rate, I think because it's played in these decks where it doesn't really belong. Um, and it's played more like a mid-range card, which is not really what you want to be doing. Pest Summoning, which we saw in our opening pack, the uh, three mana, make two pests, comes in next at overrated. The problem with this summoning is it just doesn't actually affect the board that much. It's kind of an average card. It's not bad, but you'd have to pick it pretty early to even have the shot at taking it because all the summonings you have to take kind of early because you want to build that lesson board. But this one, for how early you take it, it's just not that good. Similarly, Overgrown Arch uh, is taken pretty aggressively. This is one in green for an 0-4 wall, and you can tap it to gain a life, and then you can pay two and sacrifice it to learn. And while that is valuable, it's only really good when the gain life repeatedly is something you want to be doing. So if you happen to have like the Blood Researcher deck that we just talked about, that can be pretty nice, 
but again this card is taken really aggressively so it's difficult to get the all-in blood researcher deck when everyone's taking those cards really early when actually they're not even that good so for the most part you could just play this card as a value engine but it's not always worth taking that early because it's just not that good okay an actively kind of bad one is reduced to memory this is one white white for a sorcery lesson at uncommon and you can exile target non-line permanent its controller creates a three two uh, spirit creature token okay so this one is you're actively two for one of yourself it's hard to cast and so with the caveat that you only want to get the lesson when it's good and it still has a really bad win rate so i would say for the most part just don't take reduced to memory find some better way to impact the board with your uh lesson sideboard then we have team pennant next this is the equipment of the format it's cheaper to equip to the creature tokens but just not that great so avoid that one a reflective golem is a three mana two three that when you target it with things you can copy them it's actually decent uh if you can build around it the problem is it gets played i think in a lot of places where it's not good the two three mana two three itself is a bad rate and so you have to really work hard to make it better so unless you have the perfect deck for it i would say not take it don't take it tenured ink caster is next four and a black for a two two don't like those stats it does come in and adds a counter to something but still just not enough uh rate on this card and whenever a creature you control with a plus one plus one counter that attacks each opponent loses a life and you gain a life um this is the classic just cost too much mana not that good at number eight we have quintorius the red white legend it, it pumps your spirits and can make a uh, spirit tokens when things leave your graveyard just not a great card and the, it's in like the one of the worst color pairs one of the two worst color pairs and being a spirit lord is not really what the format is about it's much more about like spells and um getting like getting advantages through those spells rather than like doing the clunky graveyard thing and so this one yeah you can play it but it's nothing special ardent dust speaker is a five mana three four again not great stats it can help put spells on the top of your library, but it doesn't generate card advantage. And so that's why it's also number seven overrated. Okay, this one surprised me. This one I think is a pretty great card. Quandrix Pledge Mage. So one hybrid blue, hybrid blue for the 2-2. Two -two. It has Magecraft and it gets a counter every time you cast a spell. The problem is it's just taken really highly. So it's overrated in that sense. Not that it's a bad card, um, but you don't want to pick it that early because it's not that powerful. And if you are doing that, then you're probably giving up on some pretty other powerful things um then we have the the meme the dream the honor troll this is a three mana two three vigilance fine but not great uh it is a life gain payoff but the payoff is just not really worth it then you have a dina soul steeper the green black legend also just not that great a card lets you sacrifice things and pump things and has life gain synergies none of that is, adds up to anything really worth playing again another surprising one for me number three overrated and so i have to kind of scale this one back in my pick order introduction to annihilation so again this is the the five mana lesson exile target non-land permanent its controller draws a card give your opponent two for ones turns out it's just not a good way to win games of magic it's okay to have one of these in your sideboard but it doesn't win enough that it's worth picking it up really early so what i would say instead is focus on like the the better lessons the better summons and things and try to have actual removal rather than relying on introduction to annihilation because it's so clunky and slow that by the time you do this you kill their big thing your opponent untaps they've just drawn a card off of it plus their turn for their turn they play another big thing at that point and you're still kind of in trouble all right number two karak wrangler 
five mana three three bad stats magecraft to grow things mostly just bad stats on that one uh so karak wrangler avoid it and also the problem with these expensive magecraft cards like the wrangler is that you're gonna cast a decent number of spells before they even come down so if something has magecraft but it costs five mana you've already cast maybe two spells by that point then you only have a few more maybe in your hand and so it just gets worse from there and you have to untap with it your opponent could just kill it um and so it doesn't do anything immediately so those are the types of cards you want to avoid and the number one overrated card is dueling coach three white for a two two when it comes in put a plus one plus one counter on target creature um so it is a four mana three three effectively which seems decent and it's spread how you want the counter but that's kind of all it does because it's uh activate ability is four and a white and tap it to put a plus one plus one counter on each creature control with plus one plus one counter on it it's so prohibitively expensive you almost never do that so at the end of the day you basically have a hill giant uh, except the counter can go wherever you want the card has pretty bad stats and people pick it relatively highly so just avoid that one as well so hopefully this tells you again what to kind of be looking for what some of the traps are as well and the whole list with all the data is in the show notes all right before we go i do have a little bit of theory i wanted to go over and so this first thing is i i coined it resource theory and it's a little bit loosely based off of pv's 2011 article um and how like the different resources and magic how they all interact so you have you have time he says you have cards and you have life total and so i was thinking about this more the other day because i think i was prompted by the question of the week about how resources interact and at the time i was thinking of you know mana cards and life totals and i was just happened to be reminded that pv's article kind of covered this but when i was brainstorming this i was thinking more from the lens of limited and so I have the article linked in the show description here if you want to check it out for yourself. But I think it's useful to think about how do these different resources interact in terms of how we're actually going to utilize those in a game of magic. So if we think of mana interacting with cards, cards interacting with life total, and life total interacting with mana, there's kind of a push and pull both directions. Um, and when you trade one resource for another or think about using one resource to gain advantage in another, then those come up in games all the time and so how do you make those decisions that's kind of the core of resource theory so i just have these the six ways that these kind of interact and this is just scratching the surface because specific scenarios come up all the time where you want to kind of trade life total your life total resource for cards or turn your cards into a man advantage and vice versa and everything else so with that in mind that there's a ton more to say about this just introducing the topic and and as you can see there was kind of just a couple examples in the question of the week which kind of really expanded on such a specific part of this theory that we could do a deep dive on any one of the six essentially but with that in mind the first thing is that you can trade kind of mana for cards and so what i mean by this is you can build your deck in a way to spend more mana and so you can have more expensive strategies and so if you don't use as much mana on the early turns effectively you can turn that into more cards higher impact cards which can have a bigger impact on the game or you can also think of this as spending mana to draw cards uh, or using it for discard etc so when cards are the resource that you're kind of caring about more than mana you're you're basically saying okay i'm going to take time off 
to use my mana in a way just to generate card advantage. And that can come up in limited all the time with just pure card draw, which is generally not the right way to think of it. But you can think about using your mana to generate card advantage whenever you are trying to, you know, win a combat. Or is it worth kind of using using your turn there in terms of tempo to be up cards? So a classic example of this is if you have a creature and you attack and you could save the creature with complete devotion, essentially you are using your mana to slow yourself down in terms of tempo, but you're actually up a card on your opponent. And so there over time, because you're converting mana into more cards, you're going to extend the game. It's tempo negative, but you have more resource at your disposal and it can be effective strategy that way. Another number two uh, is turning kind of cards into mana. So the way that we can do this is through ramp or deck building to make sure that you have enough mana sources. So the classic example of this is when you just have fewer cards to work with, you're trying to make the most of them because maybe they're bigger spells, um, they're more high impact on the game. And so you might do something where you play an 18 land deck rather than a 16 land deck because you really want to make sure um, that you have access to all that mana and so this is sort of one where you're trading the power of increased cards for more consistency. And it comes down often to just math, right? There's a reason most decks want to play 17 lands, and that has to do with access to enough colored sources to be able to play your deck's game plan. Well, you can effectively go higher or lower on that count to be able to ensure that your trade your trade-off in terms of mana is working. This is kind of mostly a deck-building consideration, um, but you can also do this in-game where you're basically turning your cards into mana resources. A lot of that is through um, ramp strategies, or um, you can also do this in terms of like uh, mana lists and ways to just ensure that you have access to your mana base. Um, and that way you basically just get to play your game. So increasing the consistency of your deck at the cost of being able to cast fewer spells or having uh, fewer options is sort of this consideration. Number three cards as they interact with life totals so it, from an aggro point of view you want to use your cards to push damage and so you want to end the game before your opponent is able to play all their cards uh, or to help win races if it's like aggro versus aggro um, mid-range etc so you have to decide is it worth it for me to use these cards just to deal damage in the other side using cards to protect your life total if you're more controlling a lot of the times you'll use removal and you have to decide, am I protecting my life total right now, or am I taking some damage to increase the options down the road? This comes up all the time in one, where you're trying to think like, well, I could hex gold slash my opponent's 2-2, two -two, but if I think they're going to play like a 3-4 or a 4-4 toxic creature later, I might need to save my hex gold slash for that better creature. And all of that comes in with information of like the format, and also like knowing which colors are the toxic colors, how likely it is your opponent's going to play something better than what you have right there. And then also, uh, next we have turning life total into cards. And so this is kind of an interesting one where when you take damage, you not only gain more information by not using your cards. Like, so if I have anoint with affliction and my opponent attacks me with their duelist of deep faith well if i have a two three then 
I might just not block their first striking creature because if they have a combat trick, they're just going to take out my creature. And so what I can do then is I can just take the damage, right? That's my life total. And I can effectively turn it into cards in the future because my 2-3 is already stopping their 2-2 on face value. But if they have a trick, then in the future, I can use my removal spell in response to their combat trick. And I've effectively turned the life to my life points that I've lost, the poison that I've gained, into an extra card. Also, when you build out a wider board, that benefits the defender. And so if you're on defense, it means you've taken more damage because your opponent's been attacking you. But oftentimes, you just want to set up double blocks because it allows you to trade your 3-3 for your opponent's 4-4 because you had a 3-3 and a 2-2. And so when you take the first four damage from that 4-4, you're effectively trading your life total for cards just so that you can set up your board so you can trade for that Later on, basically, you're trading up in terms of cards or you're gaining card advantage in some way. And that's how you can use your life total as a resource to generate more card advantage. The last two, um, you can turn mana uh, to affect life totals. So this one is kind of thinking about ways to spend mana to damage your opponent. And so the way I was thinking about this resource is that if you basically boil it down to things, the heuristic that whoever spends more mana tends to win the game of magic is true, but it's kind of true for this reason. And so think about converting mana to damage over time as you outspend your opponent. And I think this is kind of something that's been fundamental to how limited has changed over the last five to 10 years. It used to be that cards weren't worth, like your cards weren't worth that much damage to your opponent's face because the creatures tended to be smaller, things snowballed less. And so if you just look at a basic value, if you think of like every mana spent as being worth maybe like half damage, well, if a game of magic goes to like turn nine, and let's say on average you spent, uh, you know, 30 mana by turn nine, which is, you know, spending quite a bit of mana, then in the olden days, that wouldn't be enough to kill your opponent. And so what would happen is like the most aggressive decks because the creatures and the tricks weren't that good, you would kind of use all your resources um, trying to like dump everything into play, spending all your mana, and your opponent would stabilize at like five life. Now, cards are worth investing the mana in enough where every mana is maybe worth like 0.75 damage or something like that on average. And so if we convert the damage, rather than falling short, now by turn nine, it's enough to actually kill your opponent on average. And so I think this heuristic has become more true over time where as you spend mana to impact the board to gain advantages, it directly impacts life totals because you're basically spending a bunch of mana to get ahead. And so the way this comes into practice, because everything I just said was very theoretical, it comes into practice where if you can spend mana and spend also cards usually as a resource because it's um, often not just mana, then you might want to do that earlier to be able to get ahead. So the example with the Hex Gold Slash, sometimes you'll want a Hex Gold Slash early because it'll let you tap out for the next few turns, and that'll let you get enough ahead that you're basically going to try to reduce your opponent's life total before they can actually stabilize. But uh, your opponent, of course, is going the other way, right, where they're trying to protect their life total they might use their life total to be up on cards and uh, you haven't converted all your mana advantage 
uh, to killing your opponent off in time. So you have to be a little bit careful about this because if you go overboard, you're just not going to be able to spend enough of the mana in the right places to be able to win the game. Also, if we think about mana as... Um, you want to think about this in terms of mana sinks, where the more mana sinks you have, the more mana you can spend, the more you can impact the game. Um, and some of those directly impact, you know, life totals and the pace of the game. Some of them is more mana to cards. And so that's much more about like using mana sinks to generate card advantage and that way. So the perfect example would be if you think about mana to cards, that's much more the sphere lands, right? Where you're spending mana to go up on cards in the late game. But if you think about more mana in terms of life total, this might be one where you're just trying to spend mana to damage the opponent. So Hexgold Heverwings is a great example where it kind of is like it's an extra card over time, but a lot of it, it's you're spending a lot of mana to directly impact your board and your opponent's life total by jumping creatures in the air. And so Hexgold Heverwings is like really a good differentiator for that. And so different cards interact on different axes for these different resources and then the last one here and it's one that i think is pretty clean to think about is converting life total into mana and so this one here by taking damage early you actually increase your options of mana over time so uh the mid-range and control decks tend to be a little bit slower but with the plan that they're actually going to spend more mana overall. So they convert the life total earlier in the game to be able to spend outspend your opponent, uh, which is then going to effectively be the strategy that could win. So in an aggro deck that goes one drop, two drop, three drop, four drop, that's a pretty nice curve. But if a slightly slower deck goes two drop, three drop, four drop, five drop, what happens is that second deck has actually converted life total early by taking a little bit of damage to not impact the board on turn one, but to gain a man advantage over the opponent by spending the same, basically by playing the same number of cards, but having more mana spent. And so if you think about that, uh, it also allows you to spend more mana and affect life totals. So it goes hand in hand with the last point that when you build the slower decks, um, the more mana that you spend is going to impact the life totals overall. And so you, it all comes down to that calculation. What does it really mean at the end of the day? It means building to have a good curve to make sure that you're giving yourself those options. And so I know that resource theory and sort of how these interact is, is in most aspects pretty theoretical. But if you think about how the different resources interact, you can start to realize like, here's a time where I want to use my life total to generate card advantage, or here's a time where I need to use cards to um, gain a mana advantage so that I can continue curving out to kill my opponent before they stabilize, or... Maybe I need to use my life total to gain a mana advantage uh, by building my deck in a certain way. And so all of that can kind of happen here. All right. So with that said, there is a lot more podcasting coming up because this is actually my spring break. And so I'm recording a few different episodes. Um, I do have some more theory that I didn't quite get to in this episode. So more on that coming, but I wanted to get this out as soon as possible because Strixhaven's only out for about another week, so the sooner the better, so you can take advantage of that and start winning some more Strixhaven drafts. Um, but I do want to thank my Adaptier and above patron, Marius, and everyone else. Uh, if you want to check out the details in the show notes, check those out. But other than that, thanks for listening. 
and see you next time on the 40 Card College Podcast.